So baptism matters because it really changes who we really are. Why? Because it makes you something new, a new creation. You are in Christ, in him, in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1 says. Atonement, if you look at that English word, at-one-ment, that's literally what it means, to become at one. When did Jesus become at one with humanity? His incarnation took place at the Annunciation. When do you become a child of the Father? Not when you have your own privatized, individualized faith, but when your faith drives you to the ecclesial moment when you become baptized into Christ. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, the official podcast of St. Anthony of Padua. My name is Dane Hoffman. I am the Communications and Development Coordinator here at St. Anthony, and I am joined today yet again by the theologian of the South, <laughs> Michael Gormley. Wildly overstated credentials, yeah. So no, so Mike's here with us. Uh, we're back again for, for Beyond the Bulletin, and as a newcomer to the parish, I keep on saying this, but it's it's cool to come in and with fresh eyes, see, what, see what's going on here, mm-hmm. and not to toot somebody's horn who's in the room with me, but it is cool that Michael Gormley works here. It's, I'm only talking to you. It seems it's so weird to say your name like that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, my friends back in Kansas and the people I went to school with were fans of his podcast and his work and, and, and they all knew who uh, you were. That's funny. You know, That's so funny. it's I think it's it is a cool thing that you are our director of evangelization and you're doing your work here at in suburban uh, Houston. Yeah. So I have <laughs> two things that come to mind. So today I went to St. John Vianney and I talked to their mom's group, their St. Anne Society. And uh, three women that were there came up to me and they were like, can I get my picture with you? Can I get my picture with you? My husband is going to be so jealous. And then another woman said, sent me a text message. And she said, how weird is it for me to see your face in my bulletin? Because, you know, we listen to you every week in the podcast and stuff like that. So I think it's hilarious. But the other thing is, I overly value people who are engaged in daily active ministry. And I hyperactively undervalue people who are full-time speakers Mm. without having any other ministry. Because I see that there is a huge difference between walking with people and giving a talk to people. And it's fun giving a talk to people. People give me little gifts. Like today, they gave me a tote bag. Uh, They do very nice things, and they thank you for coming, and they pay you cash money, and then you leave. You don't have to deal with the mess afterwards, right? right? And so I've always said that one of the things that I want to do is to be a part of a community. Now, maybe one day that shifts in like a Scott Hahn, right? So he is a full-time professor, he teaches in the summer times at a seminary to help form them in scripture, but then he also travels and gives talks. So, you know, maybe my role in the future would shift, but man, oh man, uh, I'm not as slick as some of the full timers, but, uh, and I will never be as famous as them, but uh, it changes you when you leave active ministry. It does. It changes the way you talk. It changes the, you know, you're not just using the same six examples every single time you give a talk because that was the last time you worked with people. So I'm, I'm very honored to be at the church of well, my you high have, school. Yeah, you have your uh, foot in both worlds. Yeah. And, and, and what you said is true. I mean, my accountability partner has had a lot more to do with my journey of, of faith and, you know, prayer and everything than Jason Everett has. Even though, even if Jason Everett gave a talk that hit me really hard when I was in high school, he, yeah. he, I haven't talked to him since, you know? So, yeah. but, it, but it, like, yeah. he, he knows a lot more, uh, but those people in your day to day, whether that's your buddy or your mm-hmm. youth minister who you um, journey with through high school. Yeah. And I didn't always feel this way because, like, there is an intoxication of getting a microphone in front of your face that, like, everyone's listening to me, everyone's paying attention to me, I'm the center of attention. You think sometimes that you're, work is the same thing as God's work and you can very easily confuse the two right so um it it took a long time for me to not want to see value more value in this than in speaking but <laughs> one day I'm 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 at Steubenville Steubenville Halifax so I'm in Canada and we can't get out until the next day after the conference is over so all Sunday night all the speakers go out and they take us on this wonderful little dinner tour of the town and stuff and I'm talking with this woman and Sarah Swafford and I decide I'm going to start dogging Jason Everett. And I'm like, you know, here's the thing with someone like Jason Everett. I said, he gives an amazing talk. 
He talks to you for five minutes at the bottom of the stage. He's got a line of 100 people. And then he's gone. And I said, and come on. It's the same talk when I was in high school that I'm now flying him out to give to my high schoolers in youth ministry. And she just looked at me and she said, you know, we're like best friends, right? <laughs> and I was like, you have never seen a man this overweight backpedal so quickly. <laughs> I, was, I was shimmying and shaking. The swath. Like, wow, coming at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but uh, I really do believe that. So, for instance, when kids come up to me at the end of a talk, they're like, can I talk to you, man? I always tell them, yes, you can. But if you make one promise to me, that you will go back to your youth group and you will tell another adult what you're going to tell me. Because I can't journey with you. And this cathartic experience you're going to have telling me some deep, dark sin, I can't absolve you. So let's make sure that maybe I can give you some advice that's a catalyst. That's what talks are. They're a catalyst. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't realize that. You know, you come to this point, but then it's like, but if it stays there, the talk was literally meaningless. If it made you feel feelings, but nothing changed, it's meaningless. But if it drove you, if it actually catalyzed you to go to confession with the priest, to go and seek out you know, marriage counseling, or to go and talk to someone about your porn addiction or whatever, then I believe talks have fruit and have a place. Right. Um, we just had a, a children's faith formation parent meeting, and I take those very, very seriously. And we had two on Sunday. And I take them seriously to the point where I use a lot of humor in it, but that's because no one wants to be there, you know, so you got to break them in. But I always evangelize in the middle of those parent meetings. And, which is what we're going to get in the basic gospel message. But I also encourage them to have a prayer life. And so I start teaching them what that looks like. And I've already received four emails from people who have been away from the church for years, not just for COVID. And that talk, they desired to come back to the practice of the church. So I gave a talk. It's a catalyst. Now I'm going to journey with them in their daily lives. That's four people who otherwise wouldn't. Now, what is going to happen to their children, their families, their homes, right? Like this is the stuff that I think we got to be thinking about other than my name and lights. And that's why you uh, took the process of hiring our new youth ministers seriously. And they're taking the process of getting the volunteers and uh, everything. We're going to walk with these students. Um, So seriously, because they're they're the ones doing the kind of the gritty, the gritty work. So we had those youth ministers on PJ and Sammy Pierce. You've been killing it. I've been loving these last few episodes. Two weeks ago. Balling my whole eye, eyes out with Kevin. Probably, yeah, with Kevin. So if you guys are just tuning in because you saw Mike Gormley, uh, go ahead and listen to this one, but also listen to uh, the one last week with Kevin Johnson. Uh, It was a great episode about his journey of of faith in his life, um, losing his wife and, and his experiences with all of that. It was so raw and real. It was raw and real. And beautiful. It was... And deep. So, yeah, check that one out. Um, but today we are we brought Mike on uh, to talk about what's been, uh, I guess, a passion project of yours for like how long now? Like months uh, you've been yeah, diving yeah, into this. Yeah, a few months. Now, I don't get to devote as much time as I want to it, but I, I constantly keep coming up with this theme of atonement theology. Atonement theology. So if you haven't heard that before, uh, my understanding, Mike, you're going to have to correct me on all of this because I, I mean... I went to Catholic school. Um, I actually went back to for uh, Catholic college for a bit, but uh, atonement theology is not something you hear from like the pulpit or very often. I mean, right. maybe you'll hear it preached about, but it's this idea of why did Jesus die for us? Since we we hear that concept all the time, Jesus came and and lived and died for us, and I think a lot of us accept that as being true without thinking. As someone new to the faith might think, like, well, wait a minute, why? How is that? How are that? How are those things connected? Our salvation and Jesus's life and death. Why couldn't God snap His fingers and make us go to heaven? What, what what's going on here? What what is, what is the theology behind all this? So, I thought you'd come on and um, give us a overview. What what is what is atonement theology? Why is it important? Yeah, to me, it's so fascinating because so I teach people how to preach the charisma which means the proclamation, the basic gospel message, that God knows you, that God loves you, that God desires a relationship with you, that God in the fullness of time sent his son to die for you and rise from the dead so that you could have eternal life with him. And God gave you a place and a call in the church. And for a lot of what we do in ministry around preaching the charisma, uh, we call it charismatic proclamation, which is kind of funny because the word charisma means proclamation. So it's the proclaiming proclamation. But to say that basic gospel message and to get that out there, you know, a lot of people in Catholic circles strategize, like, do you start with morality and politics and things that divide, or do you get to Jesus and love and God? And um, 
it was interesting because the more I began to study, the more I realized that Roman Catholics who are active in evangelization do not understand that we tend to adopt Protestant notions of atonement theology that um, are antithetical to Catholicism, that, that, that literally are condemned at the Council of Trent and following, um, and you can see this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 603, that, um, that we, we've habituated as Americans so much Protestant and fundamentalist theology that when we do things like have retreats and sing praise and worship songs, we don't realize that we're weaving in these themes that are educating ourselves, whether liturgically or, or in um, conversion moments. And, I, and I'm guilty of this, 100%. If you go back and listen to a lot of my talks that I've given, you'd be like, I'm walking the line of what we call in the Protestant world what's called penal substitutionary atonement. So what I began doing was trying to study all this stuff and understand, number one, where did this come from? How does it so easily get brought into the Catholic Church? And how can we try to understand this stuff better? So uh, the more I study, and I've been wanting to study the church fathers, the first um, 600 years of the church, the early church, apostolic church, um, later church fathers. But it's just fascinating to hear their approach to Christ and salvation. So before we get into what is the that sort of Protestant or fundamentalist view yeah. of atonement theology, what is a proper understanding of a Catholic view? Is there is there a paragraph in the Catechism that just lines it out, or is this one of those theological matters that is uh, up for debates? Maybe the wrong word. I always think of like I guess a football field or something or mm-hmm. a big playground where as long as your theory is somewhere within these borders, it's mm-hmm. the it is fine by Catholic teaching. Yeah. So where are those borders? What does yeah. Catholic theology uh, <laughs> teach about atonement? So atonement theology is specifically, if you were to ask, you know, what is the theology of atonement of the Catholic Church? You, there is no answer because the church has theologies of atonement. Number one, you could look at St. Augustine and the rest of the church fathers. You could look at St. Bernard of Clairvaux and him continuing. He's kind of considered the last of the fathers in the West, but he, it's, even so, he took his own thing. You could look at St. Anselm, who gave us the satisfaction theory of atonement that was then taken up by St. Thomas Aquinas. You could, the Franciscan school has their own vision and views of it, which we can get into in a little bit later. But it's amazing that... Um, when you begin to look at this, the, it's one of those things that was never subject to dogmatic definitions, but certain propositions were condemned. Mm. Namely, uh, the Reformed theology that Christ uh, was punished by God on the cross as a sinner, as if he had committed our sins, and he was killed by God the Father, so that him going as a substitute, so sub, substitutionary, he went as a substitute for us and made satisfaction for us so that we don't have to die. So the father killed the son so that we humans can live, right? And uh, the catechism in paragraph 603 quotes the Council of Trent, which says, we cannot view the death of Christ as if he was, uh, as, a, as an act of reprobation, as if he himself had sinned. So the, the there is elements of substitutionary atonement that, and I think once we start going, uh, although I keep saying that, uh, that we can kind of flesh this stuff out. Um, it'll make more sense as you go, but kind of the, the outlines of it is you can't say that when the father looked at the son, all he saw was our rotten sin and he couldn't do anything but kill it. That's a not, you will find that. I, if, I was about to say, yeah, I, I remember a that. recent theologian, maybe von Balthasar, took on this view. Is that true? Uh, I mean, well, so Hans Urs von Balthasar's theologies uh, of the the Paschal mystery is a lot more intense and complex than penal substitutionary atonement. And he would know never to walk those lines. Okay, so right. he was avoiding the, I mean, I'm yeah. sure he read yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hans Urs, let me just give you a picture of Hans Urs von Balthasar. For his uh, habilitation thesis, which is post-doctorate thesis and gives you permission to teach in any ecclesial college in, in Europe, he read 500 years of German literature and wrote a document called The Twilight of the German Soul, which is his thesis on why does the German soul tend to nihilism, right? But he read 
all of modern German literature up to like 1951 or something like that. So if you're looking for some light reading, go Mm -hmm. ahead and dive into the Balthazar canon. Meaning he knows how he knows how to walk the theological. Okay, all right. So um, that's on one end. I mean, so that that's something you cannot believe within Catholic theology. What are some opportunity? Like, what are some correct views of? Yeah. So let's. I think the best place to start is really you know you start with the Gospels, you go with the Fathers, and then you see how it kind of grew from there. So. In the Gospels, we have to understand that when Jesus presents the atonement, they, we use words like this. We use ransom and redemption. Uh, those words are slave market terms. So a lot of the language that we find in the Bible that are now exclusively religious terms began as mostly economic terms, terms used in everyday transactional life, like the word grace, um, you know, the word redemption, the word ransom. So if you break down... Uh, in the Old Testament, what is redemption, right? I know my redeemer lives, talking about Yahweh. Um, a, in the social life of the average Israelite, you had land. The land mattered. In fact, all 12 tribes were apportioned parts of land, and you had your families and tribes and clans within them, right? So you had your land. Your land was your identity. It was everything. Um, the reason why they're called the Jews is the Judahite tribe had this plot down south, one of the largest plots, and Jerusalem was there. So um, because in the book of Genesis, it says the scepter, the ruling staff, shall never depart the, the tribe of Judah, right? So only the line of kings can come from Judah. So the reason why all of this matters is land matters, property matters. Today, we liquidate our assets, right? You sell your parents' house after they die. You divide the money among the children. But back then, you couldn't do that. You didn't have deeds and stuff like that. So how do you have intergenerational wealth that was in cattle, sheep, and goats? You give it to the firstborn son. He may, he assumes the fatherly role. The leftovers, about 30%, are divided among the rest. But land must remain in the family. What do you do if there's a famine? What do you do if there's a drought and you're a farming family and you can't sell enough crops to make money? Well, you go into debt. What if you can't pay back your creditors? Well, you got debtor's prison. You have to sell your kids into slavery. You have to sell the land. But one person in the clan, the extended household, was known as the kinsman redeemer. And it was his job as the rich uncle or whatever he might be to step in and to buy people, to redeem, to buy back. That's what the word literally means. To buy the people out of slavery and to buy the land out of being sold off to foreigners or to other Jews or whatever. Right. So that notion of redeemer is the kinsman redeemer. The best book to read about this is the book of Ruth because that's where you meet up with the kinsman redeemer. Um, He is going to take Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, back into his house after the husband, the father, and the two sons who are married to Moabite women die. And um, Ruth goes and meets this handsome young man named Boaz, but he's not the kinsman redeemer. There's one ranked ahead of him. And because he didn't want to take on a (laughs) mother-in-law... He uh, let Boaz have his choice. Boaz took him. And the reason why this story matters is Boaz and Ruth are the grandparents of King David. So the kinsman redeemer role, and it all took place in Bethlehem, matters because they bought the land back from foreigners or whomever in the land of Bethlehem that then became the ancestral home of King David. So the redeemer, the redemption matters. Ransom was used if me and you fought or our kingdoms fought, and you know you captured, you won, you kill all the poor people, and then you take the rich people and you sell them for ransom back to the people. So these are slave prison market terminologies. Think of ancient Israel. Where do when we start with the story of Exodus, where are the people of God? In Egypt, right? In Egypt. Okay, so if you look at Exodus as the actual beginning of the story of the people of Israel. Right, they are, and they're not just in Egypt. What are they in Egypt? They're slaves. They're slaves. Okay, so what do we learn about redemption and ransom? That means principally a slave market term. You exchange a price in order to buy people back. So Yahweh reveals Himself to His people as a redeemer, right? Someone who buys His people out of slavery. Them, it was a literal slavery to Pharaoh, but ultimately Jesus Christ would manifest. It's a slavery to sin, death, and Satan, darkness. So you begin to see that Jesus identifies himself with a ransoming and redeeming mission. In Mark 10, uh, 45, when the two apostles are jockeying for position, you know, you know, the woman, you know, let my son sit on your left and on your right and James and John doing all this stuff. Um, Jesus says, you know, he tells them, he rebukes them and says, you're acting like Gentiles in my kingdom. You don't do it that way. And then he said the great line for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he views his mission as a ransoming, as a buying back. And that became the foundation for how the church fathers in the first three, four, five hundred years viewed redemption. So Jesus died as a way of buying back his people. It's called the ransom theory of atonement. But then the question is, well, who owns us? So then the church fathers meditating on this said, well, the book of wisdom says that God didn't make death, but we made a covenant with death through our sin. So they said, well, Satan inherited a certain right over us because as the demonic element, we kind of broke our covenant with him, with God, and we entered into kind of a covenant, a slave's covenant, a captivity thing with Satan. And so what Jesus does is in the fullness of time, he comes to rescue us. So God comes on behalf of the broken covenant, the, the side who was offended, and he pays the debt. Well, how does he pay the debt? Well, unlike Adam and Eve and all the children of Adam and Eve, Jesus didn't sin. So he didn't deserve death. So by dying on a cross, he paid the debt in full and then some, tricking the devil and freeing us from bondage. So a lot of the church fathers would say, following Origen, that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan who had acquired rights over us because we're sinners, right? But then a lot of people started feeling queasy about that. Like, why would God have to pay Satan? Why does that matter? So then the church fathers began saying, maybe they paid God the Father the ransom. Well, if God's paying God, why bother paying it in the first place? Now, it sounds like I'm making it silly, but when you begin to enter into their stories and sermons and homilies, it is so powerful to see this fundamental notion of Jesus as a man for others, right? Like, you know that he entered, like in the um, high priestly prayer, he says, what should I say, Father? Take this cup for me? But this is for the very reason why I came into the world. I mean, think about the readings from last week where Peter calls him the Christ, and then he reveals that he must be handed over, crucified, and three days will rise. And Peter says, no, you know, God forbid. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you think as men, not as God, right? Because Jesus had a mission, and his mission was to die. His mission was to rise. And so we got to situate it. We, the ransom theory of atonement is cool. Is that still within Catholic theology, yeah. this, this oh, yeah. ransom theory? Yeah, so St. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux tried to rehabilitate it. He was a contemporary with St. Anselm, and he tried to keep that idea going. But essentially, how we view it in the Catholic Church now is we view ransom and uh, redemption as analogous terms, that it's not, it's an analogy. It's a, a metaphor for what Christ did. And really, when you actually study the Eastern Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholics in our sacramental theology— we say things like, and I didn't realize it. This is actually what got this all started was I'm prepping people for the sacraments and I'm giving them, you know, Jesus loves you talk and trying to get all this stuff going. And I realized something. Whenever I talk about Jesus saving us, I only talk about the cross. I never talked about his whole life. And when you go into the East, especially, and in the church fathers, more than anything else, what saves us? Well, what is sin? My, the rupture of my union with God. So what saves us? My, that rupture being overcome and me being reunited to God. So if man's union with God is salvation, then when did Jesus unite his full humanity with his full divinity in the incarnation, hmm. right? So for, for many in the East, they would say the West tends, and especially in the 12, 13, 1400s, all we focus on was the death of Jesus, and so when you have Martin Luther and John Calvin, well, a decadent Catholicism, well, no wonder all they focus on is the death of Jesus and their Protestant theologies, because that's kind of what we left them with, you know? Golly, this is this is fascinating. It seems like we could go down any number yeah. of rabbit holes. And believe you me, I have. I know I that got you have. So lost in these rabbit holes. Okay, so there's a there's a different theory that yeah. um, this idea of Jesus as a man for others, and uh, you're I think you're about to get into it. The satisfaction idea yeah. of, of atonement, which uh, Anselm Saint Anselm is the one who originated Anselm, them. Yeah, Anselm. Yeah. So uh, tell us more, because I think this is the one that. Uh, as I've been reading about it, and you've actually uh, talked about this either at a staff meeting or a staff retreat yeah. or something, that it, it, that's the one 
well, I'll let I'll let you go ahead, but this is one that really connected with me and, and even betters my prayer life, yeah. which is what I'm after in all of these you know, catechetical discussions. How does it affect us? Right, right. And so when you think about this, Ans- what Anselm did, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He did not want to be at all. He wanted to stay in his monastery. He was a brilliant intellect. His problem was he tended to take things too rationalistic. This is Anselm's razor guy, right? No, no, no. You're thinking of Occam. Occam, okay. You're thinking of William of Occam. He's a jerk. We do not like William of Occam. Okay, I take it back. The only thing that people know of William of Occam is Occam's razor. Uh, But if you ask someone like me or Brian, we're like that nominalist trash. Um, (laughs) Nerds. St. Anselm of Canterbury wanted to prove to the Jew and the Muslim why Christ's death was necessary. Right? So if you start from that, uh, he wrote a document called Curdeus Homo. Why did God become man? And he's with a, a fellow monk, and he's like, listen, if I'm wrong, dismiss it. If I'm insightful, embrace it. Uh, but And I, I give it over to smarter men and, and better things, but this is what I can say. So we can't understate what he did in giving us that Curdeus Homo. It was a watershed moment in world theology because he com- he just said, listen, the ransom theory is nice as an allegory and for devotion, but it doesn't make sense theologically and logically because who's he paying the money to? And if he's paying the money to himself, why didn't he just let us off? Why did he have to die? And so the idea was this, what is justice? Justice is the virtue whereby I render unto others what is their due. What is the virtue of religion? The sub-virtue of justice whereby I render unto God what is his due, namely my worship, my homage, and my obedience. Okay, so in just the level of justice, I owe God every moment I wake up all that he is due. And if you focus on obedience, then disobedience means I'm going to refuse to render to God what it is due, what is his due. That's unjust to God. So the bare minimum (laughs) is giving him his due, okay, is is being obedient. The moment we entered into disobedience in in Genesis chapter 3 in the story of the fall, is we cease, we robbed God of the justice he was due by committing that injustice. So then Amselm says, okay, so how do we repair that which we failed at? And the question is, well, we can't just start giving him his due again because, number one, we don't do that. But number two, uh, in, our, in our state, we, we've already robbed him once. We have to go back and repair that which was damaged, and we have to make sure we don't ever do it again. We can't do that as humans. We can't give more than absolute obedience. So we're stuck at a deficit. But then he says, and just imagine someone like, Nate, you, you live alone right now, gearing up for that day of holy matrimony. Mm, but um, Now imagine if you got robbed mm. one day at gunpoint. Came into your home, they robbed you, they stole all your stuff. I, th- I imagine you have like two plastic chairs and a 65-inch $10,000 TV because that's what that's I would right. do if I lived alone. <laughs> for my Nintendo Switch, baby. <laughs> Now, okay, so let's say someone did that to you. You know, my next door neighbor, true story, right? Uh, her yeah. estranged husband committed an act of violence, and I was there, and he threatened my life and all that stuff. So before that moment, I uh, I had no cameras, no alarm system. Half the time, didn't even check if my doors were locked. After that, I have three cameras, and every night I lock my door like a fanatic. Why? Because he didn't just – if someone were to rob you, they don't just steal your stuff – that then restitution demands they replace, they stole your sense of peace. They robbed from you something more. And Anselm says, that's also what we did to God, right? We didn't just take what is his due. We, we, you don't just owe back what you robbed from him. You also owe more. And he calls that making satisfaction. So he says, not only can we human beings not give him what he's due, but we also can't pay back what we owe even more that normal justice demands. So he said, so in order to satisfy this, he said, we have to take it one step further. We offended an infinite God. So in a way, virtually, our offense is infinite. So he said, so no angel could pay that price. No perfect saint could pay that price. No created being No could, created could being. This. So in the fullness of time, God the Father sent the Son. So then, again, we see St. Anselm drawing on the wisdom of the ancients, which is, he's going to start it metaphysically. It's the union of the divine and human. 
All soteriology, all doctrine of salvation, for it to be truly Catholic, is united in two things. One, the Father is never in opposition to the Son, because we have the union of the Trinity. And two, the union of the two natures, the divine and human nature united to the divine person. So here, because he's God, he can pay an infinite amount of worship and homage. Because he's man, he can offer it even to death, right? So the, the level of his love for the Father and obedience, Scripture says in the book of Hebrews, he, son, though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's a very mysterious phrase. He learned obedience. See, that, I guess the act of learning to me is, is strange for Jesus because he's... Think of he learning in everything. terms of human experience, right? Because Scripture says that he returned with, his, with Mary and Joseph and he grew in wisdom and stature mm. before man and before God. He had a human intellect. He had a divine intellect. He had the beatific vision with his human intellect. He knew all things, but he did not experience all things through his humanity. And it was within that lived experience that Jesus can, quote unquote, grow in knowledge in his human nature. He had a human brain, right? He had human memories. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that Jesus loved us with a human heart. And that's the devotion to the sacred heart is a devotion to the human heart of Jesus that never once broke from union with the Father. Right, So because he has that perfect union with the Father in his humanity, he was able on our behalf to not just pay what we owed, but because he's also divine, to pay it infinitely back. Right, So that's the satisfaction. Right, So in his own person, being divine and human, he pays the price, but to the infinite. Wow. Okay, so this differs in that in that other idea of uh, ransom theology, in that it's not Jesus is not becoming sin or taking them on. He is freely giving of his his own l- perfect life. In- yeah. So if you think about it, the place where substitution comes from in substitutionary atonement, whether it's Catholic or, or Protestant, it comes from Isaiah fifty three, right? The suffering servant. Suffering servant. Right. By his stripes we are healed. All that stuff. And it's important, and it's a part of Catholic theology. If you look in that same part around the 600s, where it starts going through Christ was crucified and died, um, when you go through that, that's where it is in the Catechism, first part, on, um, in the Articles of the Creed on his death. That's where it gets into this, around 600, six, it's probably about 30 paragraphs, 20 or 30 paragraphs where it goes through it. And in that, it talks about that Christ really is a substitute for us. But you can't say that while he took our sins, he did, you can't say that when God the Father saw him, all he saw was our sins, and the Father hated the Son. Like literally a Reformed uh, Protestant pastor, who actually I love a lot, um, R.C. Sproul said, when God the Father saw God the Son on the cross, he said, God damn you, right? That's a bridge too far for us Roman Catholics. I have heard that idea, and it did not, does right. not seem right to me. It doesn't feel right. Well, so when I was growing up in, the Prot- in, in a very Protestant, very, very fundamentalist Protestant, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, a lot of amazing Protestants all around me, the difference between their church and my church is often the call to salvation was preached continuously, right? Constantly trying to get people saved, get people saved. And I, you like never heard that stuff in the Catholic church. You'd hear sacramental theology, you'd hear a breakdown of the gospel, but you would never hear ultimate things. And that is a poverty in the Catholic church today. But... When they heard salvation, what they heard was, I deserve to die and Christ took my place. When I was in college, I began to hear um, atheists, this whole new atheist movement, and they would call God the Father the cosmic child abuser, Mm -hmm. right? And they would say, oh, so you're telling me the fundamental thing that justifies you, which is the language of St. Paul in Romans, that which gives you justification, makes you right before God, is that God the Father put his son on trial for your sins, knowing full well that the son wasn't guilty, killed his own son and said, nah, I'm going to let all you guilty people go free. And you call that justice? You call that justification? And when I would hear that, I'd be like, who the heck says God the Father killed Jesus? Because as Catholics, especially at a Franciscan parish, which popularized the Stations of the Cross, what killed Jesus? My sin. Yeah, My did. sin killed it. We've killed Jesus. Our evilness killed Jesus. So him taking our sin upon himself and doing what the church fathers called the, um, the, the marvelous exchange. He took what was owed to us and he, gave, and he took it on himself. 
And he gave what was owed to him, namely eternal life as the inheritance of the son. And he gave that to us, right? But it's not the same thing as him taking our sin is not the same thing as him being guilty for our sin. And that's the fine distinction that the Catholic Church would make. A Reformed Protestant theologian would say, well, the father and son are in on it. Out of love for humanity, they both agree, I'm going to punish sin in the flesh. Scripture says that. Uh, sin was condemned in the flesh, right? In the flesh of Jesus. Yes, that's true. Because the ultimate punishment for sin, one, alienation from God, two, death. Jesus took all of that and he overcame the alienation through the incarnation and he overcame the death by dying. And this is what the, the church says. I love this. It's so sweet. And I just said this with the St. Anne Society parents. I don't know why I brought this up, but I brought it up. The divine nature was still united to the corpse of Jesus Christ on Holy Saturday, right? So as his soul descended into the dead, right? As Christ's spirit descended into the dead, his divine nature was still united to both, right? See, and so when you, this is interesting because the divine nature of God the Son cannot die. Right. He, but his body can. His body can. And that, that was, a, I, I guess I understood that there's a breaking there. That the, there's that Jesus, never a the breaking. Man died, but the, right. He's, Jesus he died. Right. He died. But in a certain way, his divine nature was still, I mean, right? Jesus Christ is a, human, is a divine person with a human nature and a divine nature, right? Right. He, so they're both united not to each other but to his divine personhood, right? So his divine personhood in a way was still united to that body. Why does that matter? Not just the resurrection, but even death is a place of union. It's not a pleasure banquet that we get in heaven, contra Muslims, right? That's the Muslim theology. <laughs> Basically, that which is forbidden down here, you get it you get in it spades up there. up there. We That would be hell. If all it was was a banquet of earthly desires that never ended, Right, that would be hell because just giving in to pleasures pretty soon, as Dave Ramsey says, you eat enough lobster, it starts to taste like soap. Right, so the idea of heaven is union with God forever, the union of man with God in Christ Jesus. So, if you think of that's the union, well, when does that happen? When were you united at Jesus Christ? Uh, baptism, 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 not when you die. Baptism is when you have the full indwelling of the blessed Trinity. Right? I just had a conversation the other day with um, Katie Crawl, the person in charge of RCIA, and we were talking, should we dismiss candidates, people who are baptized but not formed at all, from the mass? And this is one of the things that I think we lose sight of. Well, it's like, well, they don't know scripture, so they should go to breaking open the word. Here's the problem. And I, I used to do that all the time. I used to dismiss them. Yeah, whatever. They don't know scripture. They need to know scripture. Here's another opportunity for them to know scripture. No, the church says over and over again. They're baptized. They are priests. They have the baptismal priesthood. Even though they can't receive Holy Communion, they can still offer, offer all themselves and all their struggles and all their crosses in union with the sacrifice of the altar, with the, with the ecclesial priesthood on the altar, right? And so it's like, so baptism matters because it really changes who we really are. Why? Because it makes you something new, a new creation. You are in Christ, in him, in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1 says. Atonement if you look at that English word, at one mint, that's literally what it means, to become at one, okay? When did Jesus become at one with humanity? His incarnation took place at the Annunciation, mm -hmm. right? When he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. When do you become a child of the Father? Not when you have your own privatized, individualized faith, but when your faith drives you to the ecclesial moment when you become baptized into Christ, when you are born again out of the old Adam and into the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those of you who are baptized into Christ, St. Paul says in Romans 6, were baptized into his death? Right, so baptism is first death. When you just pour water over someone's forehead, you don't really see the death. But when you take an adult and shove them under the waters, you see the death aspect, and they come up out of the waters. You do that three times. You're baptized into his death, which means if you're united with him in a death like his, you'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. You now have new life. You're born again of water and the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation. We're living the end times in the Christian era, and we think, oh, well, he died for me, so I don't have to die. No, he died for you and rose for you so that sin would no longer reign over you. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since the children shared in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in them, so that he could destroy the one who held the children in bondage through fear of death all their lives. Because we're afraid of even dying. But imagine if that divine nature still united that corpse, that we no longer have to be afraid of dying. And what do you see in the martyrs? 
Hold the Mars joyfully going to the guillotine or the Colosseum, right? It changes how you live your daily life if you believe death is but a doorway, time is but a window. This is, this is good stuff. All right, folks, if you're anything like me, then you are going to want to re-listen to half of the stuff Mike just said and then uh, pray on it and read more about it. This, is, this, this type of conversation is the type of thing that reinforces uh, the need to both know and love God. You can't just love God. You have to know God, right? You can't, yeah. know, you can't love anything until you love know. Love the so, Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength exactly so thinking about uh jesus uh both being becoming man and then living and dying for us think about that hard learn all you can about it so you can love him better can i Um, can i throw in one more angle go because i i have two gotcha atheist teenage atheist questions for you uh that i uh, that i'm gonna okay let's do that at the end gotcha questions i want to do one more thing okay so why did he have to die why the death if God's going to forgive us anyway, C.S. Lewis says, then why didn't he just forgive us? That was one of my gotcha questions. Why couldn't God snap his fingers and say, we, okay, are, so we are back? One person said, well, he had to die. Another person, St. Thomas Aquinas said, no, one drop of blood could have redeemed the whole world. One drop of blood. So uh, him skinning his knee as a five-year-old could have. Why didn't it, though? Well, it could have, but why the death on the cross? Why all of this stuff? You can't answer New Testament questions by going to Greek sources. Right, so that's what the early church fathers... Now, think about this. You're in the first century, and you're a Jew. Every part of your life is defined by one building in Jerusalem, the temple. Everything in your life is defined by... Even if you live in Galilee of the Gentiles, 15, 20 miles north, you are walking down for the great feast, or taking a donkey down for the great feast. John the Baptist baptizing at the Jordan River. Why the Jordan River? Well, the Isaiah prophecies that the Messiah would come, make straight the way of the Lord, prepare his paths, one crying out in the desert. Well, guess what? Every time Israel entered the Holy Land, they did it through the Jordan River, which Joshua split. People forget, Exodus began with the Red Sea splitting, but it ended with the Jordan River splitting and the people entering into the Promised Land. So there's all of this stuff that we don't know because we're not there. Right, And because we're not there, and because the people that interpreted the apostles were Greeks, mostly Syriac fathers, Greek fathers, Greek in culture, Roman in culture, we, they tended to first go to Platonic and Aristotelian concepts in order to explain things, like St. Augustine defining sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? Well, a sacrifice is that which is offered to God in order to be pleasing to him. You know, he uses very universal terms that would fit a bunch of different types of sacrifice. But there's a difference between Israelite sacrifice in the Old Testament and pagan sacrifice practiced by almost all the nations. So one of the dings against penal substitutionary atonement theology of sacrifice is the idea is Jesus was killed so that I don't have to die. The problem with that is when you look at the notion of sacrifice in the Old Testament, the animals that were sacrificed were not killed on the altars. People lose sight of this all the time. Just read the most boring book in the Bible, Leviticus, the first chapter, really, or you can read the first four or five. Um, Animals were killed outside the temple as if the act of killing was not a part of the process. What is a part of the process? The part of the process is the getting of blood. Why? In Leviticus, you know, if you meet modern Orthodox Jews today, they don't eat rare steak, right? The kosher salt was invented because they wanted to make sure that their meat had soaked up all the blood, and so they put in lots of salt. Kosher food is very salty. Um, They don't want to have the blood in it. And in fact, you can even see this in, in Acts chapter 15, don't eat meat of strangled animals, because they don't want, because you keep all the blood in if you strangle the animal as opposed to slicing its jugular, which is gross, you know, crazy practices. Yeah, well. But when you, so the reason why we say this is when you look at the word atonement in the Old Testament, in Hebrew it's Kippur, like the feast day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. What you find is every time there's a sin offering or a burnt offering, what happens is they kill the animal, they get its blood in a bowl. Why? Because the life of the animal is in its blood. The life of a being is in its blood. That's why we do capital punishment. In Genesis chapter 9, when Noah comes out of the ark, he says, if man sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Because he's made in the image and likeness of God. It's this notion of you poured out his life, therefore your life is forfeit. The book of Numbers says the only uh, you, there is no redemption offered for 
there is no sacrifice offered for a murderer, right? There's no, there's no commuting of sentences. You have to kill the murderer. Why? Because his blood is an atonement for the shed blood in the land, right? So you got to think about this in the terms of their daily life. Right? This is how they viewed things. When you immerse yourself into the daily life, you begin to see the things through that temple sacrificial lens. So the idea of a sacrifice was we get the animal to get its life. Why do we do that? Because sin is always death, and sin is a pollution. Sin pollutes. Right? I think that if the Old Testament were written today, they would say sin infects. Right? It's an infection, but they would say pollution. So what gets rid of the pollution? Life. It's opposite. Well, I'm I'm not going to start butchering a bunch of human beings. God visually demonstrated he doesn't want human sacrifice in the binding of Isaac. No, right? So it was a very dramatic way of emphasizing at the core of Israel's history, no human sacrifice, right? So in this, you get the animal, you kill it to get its blood. Then you throw the blood on the altar and splash it in front of the Holy of Holies as a way of atoning for or redeeming the person who sinned. Because sin is death, and so the blood washes away. It's a detergent. It washes away the pollution of sin. Okay, but we understand this. That's weird. That is weird, right, for us. Modern, fancy people, that is weird. But when you start to look at this, and you look in the book of, like, Revelation, it says, the saints in heaven have washed their robes white in what? In the blood of the Lamb, right? The idea that his blood cleanses, and that's what allows God's presence to come back. So the Feast of Yom Kippur, what do they do? They take two animals. They have a goat. Have you ever heard of the phrase scapegoat? Yeah. Right. So the scapegoat, he puts the sin of the people of Israel on the goat. Then what do they do to that goat? If penal substitutionary atonement were true, they would kill it on the altar. But the goat's now unclean because it's covered in sin. So they chase the goat away. They drive it out of Jerusalem, out of the city. There's actually a guy who waits out in the desert and he tries to get the goat and he gets the goat and he pushes him off a cliff so that the goat doesn't turn around and come back and they have to do the whole thing all over again. Then the guy strips naked and burns his clothes and then he goes over and puts on the linen garments and comes back into the city. So now his pollution is good. He got the goat away. But then what does the priest do? So then he takes the other one. He kills that animal. Then he takes off his clothes He puts on pure clothes, and then he goes through with the blood of this animal, and he throws it on all, like what you can think of the purifying of the vessels after Holy Communion. They go, and he purifies. He throws it on the altars. He throws it on the horns of the altars. He throws it on the floor, the cups, the bowls, the the candelabra. What do they call it? The menorah candle, which is a symbol of the tree of life. He throws it on that. Then he goes into the Holy of Holies. What's in the Holy of Holies? Do you remember? The uh, Ten Commandments. What's in? So the Ten Commandments are there. The stone tablets, there's a jar of manna, the bread that came mm. down from heaven. The rod of Aaron. The yeah. rod of Aaron that budded, and that's all inside a big box. And what's that box called? You remember Indiana Jones and the, the Raiders uh, of the Lost, Lost Ark. Yeah, the right. Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, right? Okay. Big golden box with a lid with two uh, cherubim angels whose wings overshadow the lid. Why does that matter? Because that lid is where God would come down and be with his people. Our sins chase the presence of God away, so they go and they splash blood while he's confessing the sins of his people so that the blood purifies so that God's presence can come down, right? That's the point. The Greek word for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called hilasterion. And St. Paul in Romans chapter 3 and I think chapter 5 uses the word hilasterion to describe who Jesus is and what he did. That Jesus is the lid, the meeting place of God and humanity. So his blood offered is that cleansing sacrifice that when it touches the ground, what did St. John that we repeat in every mass, what did he say about Jesus? Behold the lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. So his shed blood, right, wipes the pollution free, right? That's why when we are baptized, it's like we're washing our robes white in the blood of the lamb. That's why Holy Communion is so important. It's a sacrifice that ties what happens on the cross to the meal so that you and I can eat his flesh and drink his blood, that we still commune in that that sacrifice. That's why the blood is so important. 
It's not important for us because we're not a part of the Jewish system. But if you're a little kid and you grew up where your mom and your dad and you, you go buy a lamb, you go buy a lamb from Bethlehem, which is the place where the shepherds raised the lamb. That's why when he was born in Bethlehem, there was a whole bunch of shepherds right there. There was a whole industry to supply the temple lambs to the temple. So they would walk their lamb in, bring it up, and they would sacrifice the Passover lamb. St. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So his shed blood is the detergent that cleanses the pollution of sin and death from the world so that finally life can take root in our hearts so we can finally be restored. We can become at one with the Father again, right? Right? Uh, yeah, right. I love that stuff. <laughs> I don't think any of my gotcha questions are going to get you. So No, this uh, is, wait, wait, what is it? Okay, let's do it. No, no. It. So if this is uh, if this has piqued your interest at all, uh, if you want to hear more about Mike, uh, the atonement theology from Mike Gormley, uh, you are actually giving this talk, uh, maybe even diving deeper, at a cafe... Catholica? Catholica. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it Catholica? both ways. Catholica? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I always say Cafe Catholica. So that's going to be at St. Ignatius <laughs> of Loyola up in spring uh, on Thursday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. Yep. It's going to be a ton of fun. You're yep. going to be uh, dishing out some knowledge. <laughs> uh, I got to figure out a way to streamline it. <laughs> no, this was great. I, 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 Again, folks, this is the type of thing that makes you want to... Uh, if you didn't quite understand everything here, uh, then dive in deeper. I mean, there's there's uh, scripture, there's uh, church fathers. Um, I'm sure Mike can give you all kinds of recommendations on on things to to dive into to expand your knowledge of God and and of uh, salvation and of atonement, so that you can love Him better. You know, I mean, it's it's all connected. It's not just a vanity project to to read more about theology. I mean, we have to we have a duty as Christians to to know God as well as love him. So so dive in deeper. Um Mike, thanks for coming on. Uh, I appreciate it. There's a couple things coming up in the parish. Ooh, I'm I know. I'm excited. About. Yeah, so uh, if you haven't heard yet, we got a new pastor. Father Jesse. Who? Father Jesse. Oh, I did not know that. Father Jesse Garcia. Yeah, man, he's been here I a couple weeks. I love this, man. I'm so excited. Yeah, we got a good one. He's um he's been uh moving and shaking for the last like two weeks uh, is all he's been here so there's the installation uh, mass that's going to be on saturday this saturday september 18th 5 p.m a little reception afterwards so uh come on out i think uh, someone from the diocese is officially installing him so uh, as as our pastor is the is the episcopal uh, representative vicar or something like that so the bishops couldn't come bishop or cardinal so he will be doing the rite of installation on behalf of cardinal donardo at the 5 p.m. I'm excited. That's cool. That yeah. is a cool thing. Um, and, and lastly, here's an announcement. Uh, Tony Melendez, a <laughs> Christian music artist, um, is going to be performing here at St. Anthony's. Uh, October Friday, October 15th. It's going to be at 7 p.m. Uh, we just sort of got word about this. He was going to be at a couple of parishes in Houston. Uh, it was going to be free on that Friday, so we thought... Well, let's just have a concert here. So, um, Tony Melendez, super inspirational story. He he uh, he has no arms. He plays guitar with his feet, and he's got this beautiful voice. He's been performing for 30, 40 years. Yeah, um, our own Steve Beal from the Salt Band used to tour with him. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that so, awesome? Yeah. So I hadn't heard of him myself, but then I, as I've been looking into him the last week, uh, just his history. Uh, he performed for JP2. Yeah. JP2 was so moved that he ran up and, and hugged Tony Melendez after the performance. Um, yeah. So that's. Do you know what his record label was called? He started a record label. You know what it was called? Yeah, I know what it's his called. Toe Jam Records. Toe Jam. So um, <laughs> YouTube it. Tony Melendez, there's, this, there's a lot of great videos of him performing. He's shockingly talented. It's yeah. one of those you know, incredible gifts. So hey, are you guys bringing anything new to the podcast? Oh yeah, and and uh, some some news for the for this podcast stream beyond the bulletin. You don't have to subscribe to anything else. But early in the week, Monday, I think maybe Tuesday uh, of each week, we are going to be releasing one of the homilies from the previous weekend. So um, this weekend, I think. Uh, Father David's homily is available on this stream. It's a way for you guys to to maybe catch a homily you 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 didn't go to, um, or or just revisit a homily that particularly moved you. So we're really excited about being able to send that out. Um, yeah. What was the last one called? Choosing the cross. Choosing the cross. By I've uh, listened to that twice. Now. Father David. And yeah. I was at the seven a.m. when he gave it. And then, but the, the 11 a.m. I was, was at the, the 11. One. When, that yeah, was yeah. Intense. He was, um, it was great. So, yeah, we're excited about that and sharing some more, uh, more opportunities to dive into. What are we calling picture. that? Sunday? Sunday at St. Anthony's. Sundays at St. Anthony's. That's right. That's right. Beautiful. 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 Well, thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> thanks for coming on, Mike. I got a lot to unpack. I'm going to have to re listen to this myself. Um, good deal. Thanks for coming on, folks. We'll see you next week.
Bye.